Well, good morning. I want to welcome you to our systematic theology study. As you can tell, I am uh, not here live in person uh, today on Thursday morning. Uh, I am flying back from Raleigh, North Carolina, after having preached a funeral service for one of my dear friends uh, back in the uh, Raleigh, North Carolina area. It's, it's interesting to me, as I was uh, getting prepared to, to speak on this subject, uh, to follow up the subject we started last week on death, uh, that I would get that call that my good friend had passed away uh, in the middle of the night in his sleep. He died of a massive uh, heart attack. Um, his name is Phil Sheritz, and I had the opportunity to lead him to Christ and also to baptize him. And uh, he was probably about 50 years of age when he came to faith in Christ. God radically changed him, saved him. He really took on the country of Belarus uh, to work among the children there to help build camps. And even he and his wife Mary tried to adopt two Belarusian children. And so it was just a great transformation uh, to see in, in Phil's life. So pray for me. I w will preach the funeral uh, Wednesday, and then I'll come back on, on Thursday, which is uh, today. So let me, let me begin our class with a word of prayer. and want to thank you for being here this morning. Father, we love you, and we thank you so much for the opportunity to study study the great doctrines of the faith. Lord, bless us as we wrap up this teaching on the subject of death. And then, Lord, as we study uh, the great doctrine of ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, we pray that you, the Holy Spirit, would teach us uh, all that we need to know and to learn today. I pray that you would um, bless, and I ask you to bless each person, Lord, that's here this morning. God, that you would bless their lives, their walk with you. I pray that you would draw them, Lord, to a relationship with you and to a deeper walk with you. And we lift this prayer up in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so last time we made it to uh, point three, which is questions uh, related to the topic of death. And so I'm going to ask and then answer a couple of questions, and then we will wrap up this lecture and move right into the lecture on ecclesiology. So what happens when a person dies? You know, that is a great question. It's a question that is asked uh, frequently by believers and unbelievers. Or it may be posed this way. Uh, what does the Bible say about the death of a person? The moment that life ceases on earth and they move into the afterlife, what happens? Well, some don't believe in an afterlife. Some believe that uh, life on this earth, when it ceases, that is it. There is no God. There is no heaven or hell. There's no afterlife. There is no eternity. But, of course, we disagree with that because the Bible unequivocally states and asserts that there is life uh, after death. There is a life of heaven for the follower of Christ. There is a life of hell for those who reject God, reject Jesus. And someone said one time, you know, there are no atheists one second after death. I think that's a very powerful statement. There are no more atheists one second after death because then they realize and they know that there is indeed a God and they are accountable and they stand before him in judgment. So, first of all, this question, what happens when we die? There's a great scripture, a couple of scriptures I want to share with you that give us as believers a great words of hope. The first one is 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 8. It says, we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Now, Paul is talking about there, we, the church, are confident because we have this great confidence, this great hope that once we die, we immediately are uh, taken into the presence of the Lord. And look at this next verse. I love this verse out of Philippians uh, chapter 1, verse 23 says, For I am hard-pressed between the two, and again this is the Apostle Paul speaking or teaching, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. 
And so again, he's talking to the church and he's saying at the point of death, life ceases here on this earth, but immediately we move into the afterlife, into the presence of the Lord. Uh, Jesus, remember, to the thief on the cross. Remember what he said in Luke 23, 43. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, paradise is an, a synonym for heaven. And so Christ is teaching or Christ is telling this uh, thief on the cross that, that immediately on this day you will be with me uh, in paradise. Hebrews 12, 23 speaks of when we worship. We come into the presence of God and listen to this quote, and the spirits of just men made perfect. That's, that's, an, that's almost like a new verse to me. I haven't really seen that or studied that until I was studying for this uh, lesson. Uh, let, let me read it again. It's Hebrews 12, 23. It says, when we worship, we come into the presence of God and, quote, the spirits of just men made perfect. So uh, it, there, there is an assertion there of the fact that those people who have died and, and, and are believers, they are very much alive because in some way uh, we join with them, we participate with them in, in worship. Okay? Grudem says, uh, at this point we will... Um, our souls, our spirits will be uh, with God. Our bodies, as we talked about this last week, will remain in the ground until the return of Christ. And then he says, at that point, our re we will have a resurrected body, a glorified body like Jesus has right now, and then we will live with the Lord Jesus eternally. Okay? So, Scripture does not teach, however, the doctrine of purgatory. Purgatory is a Roman Catholic teaching that goes something like this, that when you die, you go to an intermediate place. You're very much alive, even as a believer in Christ. You, 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 may, not, uh, you may not just be really ready to go, go to heaven, so you go to a place called purgatory, and there is kind of a time of refinement, and, you, and your soul gets kind of cleansed and prepared to enter into heaven. And again, you're not going to find this teaching in Scripture, but you will find it in the apocryphal book of 2 Maccabees. But you think about a doctrine like that for just a minute. Just think about how unbiblical that doctrine is because that doctrine teaches us that Christ is not able to save us efficiently, completely, and so we have to have some help, maybe the prayers of the saints or maybe some refinement of our souls before we are allowed uh, to go into heaven. Again, the New Testament uh, does not teach uh, any of this. Um, this was a pretty prominent teaching in the 16th and 15th centuries uh, during the Protestant Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther, uh, he and this man by the name of John Tetzel, they kind of went at it and debated. Tetzel was a, a Roman Catholic, and he had a famous quote, and it went something like this, Every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Martin Luther's like, oh, that's terrible doctrine, you know, because you give your money and then maybe, you know, we'll, we'll kind of put up some prayers for you and we'll get your loved one out of purgatory and get him, get him or her into heaven. And of course, Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, the Anabaptists would all oppose such a teaching. Another thing the Bible does not teach is soul sleep. Uh, soul sleep. And maybe you've heard of this before. This is the view that death uh, of the believer goes into a state of unconsciousness. And he stays or she stays in that state of unconsciousness until uh, the return of Christ. However, if, if the souls of believers go immediately into the presence of Christ at the moment of death, then this teaching cannot be, it cannot be accurate. And that's why it's so important, I think, to stress this 2 Corinthians 5.8 and Philippians 1.23 that has that sense of urgency and, and immediacy about it. 
that the moment of death, there is no purgatory, there are, there's no soul sleep for the believer. We go immediately into the presence of God and into eternal life in heaven with Him, whereas the unbeliever faces the wrath and the judgment of God. Uh, Grudem writes these words, and I quote, he said, Sleep is simply a metaphorical expression used to indicate that death is only temporary for Christians just as sleep is uh, temporary. And so again, to be absent with the bodies, to be present uh, with the Lord, that leaves no room uh, for the doctrine of purgatory. Hebrews 12.1 teaches us, um, it kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier out of the book of Hebrews. Um, it says that the cloud of witnesses uh, surround us. Who are these clouds? Who are these cloud of witnesses? They have a, uh, you know, a, a nature about them. It's not just an you know, inanimate cloud, but he's referring to people, those who have gone before us, believers who have died and gone to heaven, and they have some awareness of here uh, on this earth, and therefore the writer of the book of Hebrews is encouraging us, admonishing us to persevere because we are encompassed by such a great a cloud of witnesses. And then again, there's that text again, Hebrews 12. It says that we're in the presence of the spirits of just men made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Let, let me say a word about the Old Testament saints. Again, I think there's some misunderstanding about uh, Old Testament saints that maybe, well, maybe they're kind of in this unconscious or this soul sleep and when Jesus returns, they will be uh, in the presence of God. But I don't, I don't believe that. I believe upon death they entered into the presence of the Lord, not into a state of unconsciousness, not into a state of waiting for the future redemption uh, of the work of Christ even. Uh, for example, I believe in Enoch and Elijah, and when it says they were taken, I believe it means they were taken to heaven. Uh, David said in Psalm 23, 6, uh, he said, I'm confident that I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so the Old Testament saints were saved by having a faith relationship in Yahweh, and so they are not in some intermediate state. They're not in some soul sleep waiting for, uh, in this case, waiting for the, uh, the cross of Christ or waiting for the return of Christ. No, they, I believe they're in the presence uh, of Almighty God, these uh, Old Testament saints. What about praying for the dead? You know, should we uh, do that? Uh, I just believe we, we really shouldn't. I don't think there's any, any biblical precedent for it. I don't think there's any really, <laughs> it's not going to do any good because at the moment of death, uh, there, there, is no, there are no second chances. So I don't think that's... Again, it, it is taught in Maccabees, the apocryphal uh, Roman Catholic book, 2 Maccabees. Well, if that's good news, let me, let me tell you some challenging news. Just as the souls of believers go into God's presence in heaven upon death, so do the souls of unbelievers go to hell upon death. There are no second chances upon death. I want you to think about that for just a minute. There are no second opportunities at the point of death. Somebody said the good news of the gospel is only good news if they hear it in time, and I believe that. No second chances. It's a sobering truth clearly taught in the Bible that there are no second chances upon death. It gives me uh, motivation to share the gospel of Jesus Christ because I really do believe in a heaven. I really do believe in a hell. They may not, but, but I do, and so I believe as a follower of Christ this is a great motivation for us to evangelize, to tell people about the Lord, because if the Bible is true and there really is a God and there's a heaven and there's really a Satan and there's a hell, then it is incumbent upon us, it's imperative upon us uh, to share uh, the gospel uh, with them. I went uh, a couple of Fridays ago and I was playing golf and uh, they paired me with the gentleman that shall I say he had some salty uh, language about him and, uh, and I knew it was just a matter of time 
before I shared with him and, and tried to witness to him. And so I kind of waited a few holes of golf and got up the courage, got up the nerve. And so finally, when the round was over, I, I walked him out to his car and I said, uh, you know, let me, let me help you. I know you're in a hurry, but let me uh, take your golf cart for you. And, but before you leave, I just want to take a moment and say a couple things to you. And I want to share a little bit with you about the Lord. I said, and I called him by his first name. I said, you know, I really don't know what's in the heart of man, but God does. And so I just began to share with him a little bit. And he, you know, he, he didn't really want to hear it. And so he just kind of, okay, well, thank you. And he kind of wrapped up and, and took off. And I returned his cart as, as I said I would. And you say, well, why would you do that? Why would you interrupt that man? I mean, that guy, he's played golf. All he's trying to do is he's trying to go on with his life, but you're interrupting him, you're detaining him. It's kind of like the guy was in, lived in Arkansas, went up and watched a, a high school football game that Shiloh Christian was playing. And I sat next to a guy, and I began to share the gospel with him at the football game, and he got so mad. He looked at me, and he goes, why are you talking about that stuff at a football game? And I was thinking... Dude, you're either going to heaven or hell. And I, guys, I really believe that. I believe that people, their eternal destinies are in the balance. If they know Jesus, they go to heaven. If they don't, they go to hell. So that motivates me. It inspires me and encourages me to share the gospel. Luke 16, 24 through 26 is one of the most powerful teachings in the Bible that speaks about unbelievers and death and their eternal destiny. You heard this before? Heard this? The parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Then he cried out and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime, please underscore that, in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there uh, pass to us. And again, that's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. That's the teaching of Jesus on uh, this subject of eternality, the subject of heaven and hell. And we'll talk some more about this doctrine toward the end of our, uh, our lessons. I think it's lesson 19 when we talk about the doctrine of, of, of judgment. So the emphasis of Scripture regarding, regarding eternal destinies or rewards for the righteous in heaven or punishment in hell for unbelievers is never based on anything done after death, okay? It's all predicated and based on things happening before death. When I speak of death, I must include this text of Hebrews 9.27. says, it is appointed unto man to die once, and then after that, the judgment, or it is appointed unto man to die, and then after that, that person uh, faces judgment. Again, this is a hard teaching, but uh, as Grudem would reiterate, if, this is, if, if we really believe the Bible and if we believe that Jesus just wasn't you know, joking or he just wasn't uh, you know, kidding about heaven and hell, if he really was serious, then we have to be serious and, and take it um, to heart as well. Uh, again, these words of Christ, he taught a lot about hell. He said, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's Matthew 25, 41. Then he said in Matthew 25, the same context, verse 46, they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into uh, eternal life. Uh, let me share one more thing about the doctrine of death that speaks to uh, this doctrine of annihilationism, which, by the way, 
It's, it's very prominent among some denominations, for example, Seventh-day Adventists, they teach this, but also some cultic groups teach it. And the doctrine goes like this, that upon death, the unbeliever um, is annihilated. Their soul, their spirit is just zapped by God, and they cease to exist. And again, I'm going to talk some more about this when we come to the doctrine of judgment, but I wanted at least to introduce it to you here. Again, I don't think there's any precedent for this in Scripture, though I've talked to people who believe this. They believe, <clears throat> how can God, an, an eternal, wonderful, heavenly Father, uh, how can we enjoy eternity in heaven forever while there are others suffering in hell forever? And so we'll talk more about it, but the Bible, it, it doesn't teach it. doesn't teach the doctrine of annihilationism. So that concludes uh, Lesson 16, and uh, I would stop and ask you if you had any uh, questions or, or comments. I guess I still could, but, um, um, you know, you could talk while I just kind of stand up here. But uh, anyhow, I'm going to have to move right on to Lesson 17. And uh, if you do have questions, though, seriously, about this topic of death or this next session on uh, the church, then I'll be happy to, when I come back a week from today, and I'll try to answer uh, some of your questions that you may have on that. Now, this is one of my favorite studies. I've been so looking forward to being able to teach on something I'm very passionate about. Not that I'm not passionate about death. I mean, I, I, get, I get death. I'm, I get it. But I'm really passionate about this, about the doctrine of the church. And it's known as ecclesiology. And the ecclesia, literally in the New Testament, means the assembly, okay? But if you break that word down, it's a beautiful word in the Greek. Ek means out, and leleo means to call. So when you put the compound words together, ecclesia, it means the called out ones. And of course, that would be followers of Jesus Christ. We are called out. We are separated from this culture of death, if you will, this culture of the world, and we band together as a body of Christ, a body of believers, a band of brothers and sisters in Christ, and that is the formation of, of what the Bible would call the church. Okay? So let's give an explanation and a biblical basis on uh, the church, and um, we'll begin with the, the nature of the church itself. The, the church is, a good definition Grudem gives, is it is the community of all believers. I like that. It is the community of all the redeemed or all the believers. The church consists of all <clears throat> people of faith, both in the Old Testament, remember that, they're saved, converted through faith, demonstrated, their faith demonstrated in keeping the, the laws and the sacrifice and so forth, but most of all it was predicated on faith. Heaven consists of the Old Testament saints as well as the new. And uh, let, let me share a verse with you in Ephesians chapter 1. I've been looking at this verse even today and trying to wrap my mind around all that's taught in this. It's amazing. Talking about Christ, who's the head uh, of the church uh, here on earth. And he put all things under his feet and gave him, talking about Jesus, to be head over all things to the church. Okay, He's head over all things, and especially, if I can add that, if I can interpret it this way, especially related to the church, as, okay, then it says, which is his body, talking about the church, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And I was reading one uh, common, uh, commentary, and it's talking about how, you know, Christ, one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. That is not the case right now. In fact, the scripture talks about the God of this age, the rulers and principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And so, 
you know, Christ will one day, he will, he will rule over all, but right now he especially rules over uh, the church because in the, in the end time or the end in eternity, everything is subjugated under his authority. But, uh, of course, we know that right now that it's not the case because there is a very real presence of evil. There is, as 2 Corinthians says, the little g, the God of this age. There are principalities and powers of darkness and so forth. So Ephesians 1.22, what a, what a powerful verse. And you're probably familiar with Matthew 16.18 that says, you know, upon this rock, uh, Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail uh, against it. You know, God is, he's always had a people of faith. He's always had a community of believers. I was talking about in the Old Testament. Let's talk about those guys for just a moment. They were people of faith. They were people that worshipped the one true God. And it was God's intention for Israel to be a missiological people. It, it was his intention, Genesis 12, 3, Exodus 19, 6. He called them out so that they would be a missionary people, a light to the nations, a priesthood, if you will. Again, the, going back to this Hebrews 12 passage, we were talking about the, the last session. The great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 would include all believers of the Old Testament, uh, people like Abraham and Sarah and Ruth and Moses and David, great cloud of witnesses in the eternal heavens. And then it would include a great crowd of, cloud of witnesses such as uh, New Testament believers, Peter, James, and John. And then all believers, uh, the conglomerate, the, the whole whole body, if you will, of believers in heaven, in some wonderful way, they cheer us on. They, um, we, we're a part, we're, we're connected uh, with them, and that's where we as believers are, are going. But in the meantime, this is the church. We congregate, we meet together here on this, on this earth. So number one, the definition is, it is the community of all the redeemed, or the community of all believers, all right? <clears throat> number two. The church has an invisible dimension to it, and it has a very visible dimension to it. Now, the invisible, uh, we cannot see, uh, and that would relate to uh, the church in heaven, if you will. It would also relate to people that uh, have Christ within their hearts, and they are a part of the body of Christ. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.19 says, The Lord knows those. Uh, who are his, okay? So it has an invisible dimension to it. It's kind of like the kingdom of God, it, it, the rule and the reign of Christ. The kingdom is both here and not yet, and so the church consists of both the invisible as well as the visible. The church or assembly of believers in heaven, they're unseen, okay? Think about that. The believers in heaven, if you will, the church, they're unseen, but yet they are very, very real. They're, they're part of the redeemed community, the church, but on this earth, then you have the visible aspect. And uh, in, in my study Bible that I use a lot, and I love my uh, study Bible, and it's called the Believer Study Bible, and it says this, and I quote, it says, The church, ecclesia, refers to believers or to Christians who are on the earth and also to those who are registered in the heavenly Jerusalem. This is a clear reference to the universal church, consisting of all the regenerate, Spirits of just men made perfect refers to the people of God in Old Testament times who are now seen uh, in heaven. And end of quote. So God sees the invisible church, though we cannot. Okay? The true church also has this uh, visible uh, aspect to it. that You can see it uh, with the naked eye. For example, you are sitting 
in a church building, okay? And it would not be a far-fetched to, to conclude that if you're here, especially if you're here at 6.45 a.m. on a Thursday morning, there's probably a pretty good indication that you love God and you love the people of God, you love the church, and you love to congregate with, with other people of like, of like faith. Uh, Grudem says, and I quote, the visible church is the church as Christians on earth see it. In this sense, the visible church includes all who profess faith in Christ and give evidence of that faith in their uh, lives, end of quote. So in the visible church in the New Testament and throughout all church history to our present day, uh, you have true believers and you have unbelievers. Now catch this, this is really interesting. In the invisible church, there are no unbelievers. But in the visible church, there will be unbelievers. For example, those who've died in Christ and go to heaven, we, we cannot see them. But the fact that they are in Christ, in heaven, means they're part of that invisible church. There are no unbelievers there. But we do have unbelievers in the, in the church because Scripture repeatedly tells us about false teachers, false prophets, and, and so forth. The church should consist of regenerate people who gather each week to worship Jesus and declare their faith uh, in, in Him. Uh, and again, in Acts 20, talking about unbelievers sprinkled in the church, uh, Jesus talks about the wheat and the tares, if you will. But in Acts 20, Paul warned the Ephesian elders that wolves would come in from their ranks, from within that church in, in Ephesus, as we talked about Sunday, there will be the Nicolaitans. There will be these people who will spring up in the church, in the visible church, if you will. And yet they, as John would say, they were with us, and they went with us, but they never were truly uh, of us. So that is the church visible and the church invisible. I hope that helps you. I'm, uh, this is kind of a, a new dimension in, in ecclesiology, the way Grudem describes it. I, I like it. It, it. It's challenging to think of it in those two realms of the visible and yet the invisible. So number three would be the church is local and the church is universal. All right? The church is local, obviously, and local bands of believers. Here we are at the Great Hills Baptist Church in 10,500 Jollyville. It's a local assembly of people. Again, this building is only brick and mortar. We refer to it as the church at Great Hills, but really the church is us. Okay? It's, the, it's the redeemed community of people who make up Great Hills Baptist Church. And so it does definitely have a local dimension to it and a universal dimension to it. And let me, let me give you some examples of this. A house church is referred to as the church in Romans 16.5. The church is also <clears throat> referred to as... A, a large in a large city like Corinth um, is also this is called the church first Corinthians 1 2 it's interesting in the New Testament the church is referred to in a region the church of Judea Galilee and Samaria if you will in Acts 9 31 and then Ephesians 5 25 Paul refers to the the church in, in the entire world if you will because he talks about when Christ loved the church and gave himself for the church Yes, the local assembly of believers, but also for the universal church, for uh, churches that are scattered all over uh, the globe. So they have that local dimension, but they also have a universal dimension. Jesus Christ has his people everywhere. In fact, Revelation 5.9 says that out of all the nations of the world, there will be believers 
gathered in heaven around the throne. We will be worshiping him with people from all types of ethnic backgrounds and, and groups and nations. What an amazing day that will be when all the church of the redeemed in Christ, we are gathered together in heaven. All right, so the Bible uses number four. It uses metaphors to describe uh, the church. And, and you're familiar with some of these. these. These are so so descriptive, so amazing. For example, the church is referred to as a family. Uh, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Um, God is our Father. Jesus Christ is our brother, our leader. Uh, we are part of the family of God. We have brothers. We have sisters in the faith. And so Christ is the head. We are his members. That's another analogy. But I love this family analogy, the family of God, as uh, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 18, 1 John 3, 14 through 18. We're also called the bride, the bride of Christ, Jesus being the groom, the husband, us being uh, the bridegroom or the wife. And this analogy is, is used in, in Scripture as well, especially in Ephesians uh, chapter 5. Okay? Other metaphors would include, and let me just read these to you. You've heard these before, but branches on a vine, John 15, 5. We're referred to as a, 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 a building, you know, the living stones, the, the building, 1 Corinthians 3, 9. Now, don't get that confused with the mortar, brick and mortar, lumber building. But no, we are being built up into this body of believers. And so that's how 1 Corinthians refers to us in 3, 9. We're referred to as a living temple in 1 Peter 2. Uh, and again, not this inanimate temple as you might think of, you know, uh, an edifice or a, you know, some kind of building, but we are living stones. We are a living temple that, that the Holy Spirit of God inhabits. And then again, the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, which is, um, which is a very powerful analogy, talking about the body of Christ, some our eyes, some are feet, some are hands, if you will. Christ is the head of the body. He is the, uh, he is the leader, the unquestioned leader. Uh, we would reject the Roman Catholic teaching that the church today is the continuing incarnation of Christ. I, I don't see that. Um, I see the body of Christ, the family of God, the church, in more of the New Testament terms instead of the continuing incarnation of Christ. But all these metaphors are rich in meaning and... Uh, we should appreciate all of them and not focus just on one of them but because there are many, uh, and as I just mentioned to you, five or six metaphors that relate to um, describing the church. Okay, so number five. Number five is interesting. This is, um, this is where I know not many times I disagree uh, with our author, uh, Dr. Uh, Grudem, but I uh, do disagree with him at this point when he talks about the church and uh, Israel. Uh, he would be uh, referred to as a replacement theologian. A replacement theologian is the church has totally, completely replaced Israel and God's uh, dealings with and God's plan for Israel has all ceased, it's over, and you just have uh, the church. Now, I, I disagree with that because I believe there are lots of places in the Old Testament that have yet to be fulfilled when God is talking about Israel. Now, Israel... Just like the Gentiles, you're either Jew or Gentile, all of us come to faith the same way in Jesus Christ. And so, um, Gentile, Jew, there, there's, there's no salvation apart from, uh, apart from the saving work of Christ. However, having said that, I still see 
God's hand on Israel and a plan for. In fact, Paul says in Romans eleven twenty six, there's coming a day all Israel will be saved. And what I look upon that is meaning there's going to be an influx, an ingathering of Israeli people that will come to faith uh, in Christ. Now, there's there's a couple of thoughts here. There what you call dispensational theologians who would believe very much a difference in Israel and the church and unlike replacement theologians like Wayne Grudem. Uh, for example, Lewis Sperry Chafer, C-H-A-F-E-R, he is well-known uh, dispensational uh, theologian. Now, I don't agree with everything he teaches either. Um, I don't agree with everything Wayne... In fact, I don't agree with anybody on everything, and you shouldn't either. Uh, because there's only one person who's right, and that's Jesus. I can't hear y'all say amen because I'm just taping this, but I believe y'all would say amen at that point. It's only Jesus. He's the one we follow. He's the one we worship. And he's the one that's always right. And his scripture, his word is always right. But Schaefer believes that Israel, um, that during the millennial reign of Christ on earth, Israel will enjoy privileges and promises of the Old Testament on earth while the church is in heaven after the rapture. And I, I don't see that. I don't press this, this difference between Israel and church as far as he does. There's a group called the, called the progressive dispensationalists, and they see both Israel and the church as a part of the kingdom of God. I'm good with that. And we reign together with Christ in Jerusalem during the millennial reign, and I'm absolutely good with that. But think about this. Um, Jesus... As I understand Scripture, he will reign not from Washington, not from Paris or London, but he will reign. He will set up a literal physical reign, and it will be in Jerusalem. And I think that's, uh, I think that's significant. And again, I don't place myself as a replacement theologian that God's completely through with Israel. I mean, look at Israel. Is there a nation on earth that is more loved and more hated than Israel? Probably not. They're deeply loved by us and some others in Europe, and they're deeply hated by those who are surrounding them. In fact, some believe, myself included, that Ezekiel 38 and 39, that those uh, nations that are surrounding Israel with the help of Russia, there's coming a day that they're going to converge on Israel, and I believe that's Ezekiel 38 and 39, and at that moment, God will supernaturally deliver them. So I still see a lot of things unfulfilled as far as prophecy and eschatology, and it's so fascinating to me uh, with Russia and, and the place they will play. I believe in the end they will prove to be enemies of Israel, and they will join. Well, they're already linked with Iran. We already know, uh, we already know that. So I uh, don't want to get too carried uh, away there, though it's easy for, for me to do that. Uh, so Grudem... He says, I'm not with the, uh, these dispensationalists on this. He, he puts himself more in the camp of replacement uh, a theologian. Um, and he refers to, uh, and that's the thing I like about Grudem. He, he'll make these statements. He says, well, let me tell you my interpretation of Scripture. And, that, and that's what I appreciate about him. He, he says what he believes, and then he backs it up. He'll say verses like Romans 11:24, where Paul speaks of Israel uh, being grafted into the olive tree. Or Romans 2, Romans 9 He'd say the church now is the chosen uh, people of, of God. And so Israel has faded away, and now it is the church and only uh, the church. Um, you know, 
I don't see any superiority, by the way. Just because a person's Israeli or Jewish background, I don't see them in any way superior to somebody who's, who's a Gentile. And furthermore, I do not believe that a person, just because they're a Jew, that they're going to heaven. I was trying to witness to a guy just the other day, another guy on the golf course. I was talking to him and inviting him to church, and he said, you know, my wife was playing cards with a bunch of Baptists the other night. And I thought, well, that's, that's interesting, but I'm, I'm, it's, it's cool. I'm sure they're just playing fun game of cards. And, um, and, and when they found out that she was uh, a Jew and not a, not a Christian or not a follower of Christ, you know, they, they kind of shunned her. And they kind of like, wow, you know, we thought you were a Christian. And they kind of distanced themselves from her. And, and uh, he made the statement, you know, if we're God's chosen people, why can't y'all get along with us? And I thought... That's, that's interesting. I mean, but he took it a little too far. He's thinking God's chosen people. I don't need Christ. I'm going to heaven. And, of course, we would dis- disagree with that. And so, and that's where I disagreed with him. And I said, well, I appreciate Judaism. Don't misunderstand me. Because you are the birth. The Judaism is the birth. We were born out of uh, the cradle of Judaism, our faith, Jesus Christ himself, born of the lineage of David of the tribe of, of, uh, of Benjamin, Judah, excuse me, of the tribe of, of Judah. So um, there are some people that are extremely passionate about this. And when you start talking to some about replacement in Israel, and not, it's not good. They do not, they do totally disagree with that. And I know people like that. I'm trying to disagree agreeably, however. So that's the church and uh, Israel. And let me go to number six would be the church and the kingdom of God. Yes, the church and the kingdom of God. Uh, Grudem quotes uh, another theologian by the name of George Ladd when he writes, the kingdom is the rule of God. The church is the society of men. I think that's a good distinction. The kingdom is the rule of God. The church is the society of men. The kingdom is the reign and the rule of Jesus Christ. He is the king, if you will, in the kingdom. And the kingdom has come in the person of Jesus Christ. But it's not completed or it's not fulfilled because there is, a, there is a now and a not yet dimension to the kingdom. And let me show you this in Scripture. Luke 17, 21, for example, says, Now, uh, nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Okay, you're a follower of Christ. Christ has come. He's ushered in his kingdom and so that has a nearness dimension to it. But let me give you this future dimension to it in Luke 13, uh, 28. Uh, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. You will see this in the kingdom of God and yourselves will be thrust out. So you, you see that is totally another dimension of the kingdom. That is a future, uh, future dimension. Uh, there is obviously a close connection between the kingdom of God and the church. Uh, when people are saved, they, according to the Bible, they become members of both. Uh, they become members of the kingdom of God, and they become members of the universal church. And I would also say, and they should become members of a local assembly, a, a local church. Again, I heard y'all say amen out there all the way from Carolina. Bless you. So the church is incredibly important. And y'all know that I am a churchman. I absolutely, unequivocally, no apologies, believe in 
the church, with all of our warts and, and freckles and, and problems that we have, we are still the church. And that's part of the dynamic, the, the beauty of being a part of a church is because as iron sharpens iron, so man uh, sharpens the countenance of his friend. And so we, we have that synergy, we have that working together, and, uh, and it's God's intention, it's God's desire. If anybody wants to debate with you about, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church, tell them to read the Bible. Tell them to read the Bible. Uh, over half of the books of the New Testament were written to what? A church. To the church at Rome, to the church at Colossae, to the church at Philippi, Thessaloniki, and so forth. You, you can't separate Jesus' eternal life in heaven. You, you cannot separate following him, loving him, serving him without the context of the body of Christ. It, I guess you can, and you'll be very un-New Testament-like. Because our faith is not a lone ranger, rugged, individualistic, Americanized version of, well, I just, I love God, I'll worship God down at the lake. I love God, I'll worship God over here Sunday on the golf course. No, you won't. No, you won't. You'll be fishing. You'll be playing golf. God wants us together. God wants us to hear the word of God preached. He wants us to sing praise to him collectively. He wants us to give. He wants us to use our, our gifts in the body of the Christ for the edification, for the building up of his church. Y'all pardon me as I just get a little excited when I start talking about the church. And it is beautifully interconnected with uh, the kingdom, the reign and the rule of God. Let me, let me share with you um, some marks or some characteristics of a church. Uh, what makes a church a church? Uh, are there any defining, salient characteristics or features that you would say, this is a church, and, and there are. When you read Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, you see the church, the first church. Really, that is the first church. That's the church birthed at Pentecost. They have congregated. They have come together in Jerusalem. The apostle Peter is the pastor, if you will. He's the primary spokesperson. He's preaching. People are being saved by the thousands, and they're being incorporated not into something beautiful like this, obviously, uh, they didn't have buildings like this, but they had homes. And they would meet in homes scattered, proliferated all throughout the city of Jerusalem. They would come together and they would do Acts 2 together. And they would praise God. They would uh, have the apostles' doctrine, the teaching. They would break bread together. They would observe the Lord's Supper uh, together. God would add people to them and they would disciple and nurture them. Anybody have a need, they would take up an offer, they would give, they would minister, they had a benevolent ministry, a ministry to them. So, you see, in the, the Bible has a lot to say about church, and I think before I go into all these books I've read and all the study that I've done about the church, I think the best place to begin is Scripture. And so you read Acts chapter 2. Another beautiful description of the church is Acts chapter 13, the church at Antioch. In fact, uh, Ken Hemphill wrote a whole book entitled The Antioch Effect where he takes the characteristics of that church in Antioch in Acts 13 and applies it to uh, the church uh, today. Let me give you a couple of resources here that, that might be of interest to you. Mark Dever has written an excellent book called The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. I uh, mentioned Ken Hemphill's book, The Antioch Effect. Uh, and other books written by Tom Rayner, for example. Uh, Ed Stetzer. These are just some of the more common um, Contemporary is the word I'm looking more for. The contemporary authors who are writing today on the church. But I was looking at Mark Dever's uh, book called The 
nine marks of a healthy church. And Endeavor, if I remember correctly, would, would be more in line with Grudem as far as Reformed and Calvinistic theology, but I still read books about people like that too, you see, even though I'm not as much a Calvinist as maybe some others are. Uh, but in his book, Nine Marks, I thought it was very interesting. Do you know what the number one trait, characteristic, or mark of a New Testament church today, he said? He said, the number one trait, there should be biblical exposition. It's the first thing he mentions. He calls it, there should be expositional, biblical preaching. That should mark a church because it was definitely marking the church in the New Testament because those men of God were preaching the doctrine. You hear Paul, Timothy, give heed to the doctrine and, and you see John preaching, teaching doctrine in the church there in Ephesus. So the first one he says is expositional preaching and I kind of like that, amen. Number two is biblical theology, which of course goes hand in hand. Number three, a, a basic key ingredient of a church is they're gospel-centered they're focused on the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the transformation that Christ gives in a person's life when they repent, when they believe. A biblical understanding of conversion. He said that is a mark of a genuine New Testament church today, that they have a biblical understanding of conversion. Next, they have a biblical understanding of evangelism and what that means, what it does not mean. Somebody said evangelism is not everything we do in the church, and that's true. Evangelism is sharing the gospel with people. And seeing them born again, and then, and that's how they enter into the kingdom of God. That's how they enter into the church, because they are, they are regenerate. And the next characteristic he would say, or he did say in his book, is a biblical understanding of church membership. Next, he says, a mark is biblical church discipline. Interesting. Now, this is Mark Dever, pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church right there in Washington, Ph.D. from Cambridge, I believe it is, and an um, excellent pastor teacher. And he says one of the key characteristics of a church, at least should be, uh, discipline, church discipline. Next is a concern for discipleship and growth. That's number eight. And then finally, has a biblical structure of leadership. And he said those are the nine marks of a New Testament church. Uh, there, you say, well, you're, you're stressing New Testament, you're stressing uh, genuine, and that's right, because there are a lot of heretical churches, if you will. There are people that call themselves a church, uh, you know, like Jim Jones, uh, the, the church that he, that he gathered around himself, about 900 people there in Ghana, South America, which, of course, he was a false prophet, a false teacher, and so you, we have false churches. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a false church. It is a... It's the Mormon church. I heard a lady say one time she converted out of Mormonism into Christianity, and she said Mormonism is as much like Christianity as Hinduism. Think about that. Mormonism is as much like Christianity as Hinduism. That's how far-fetched and different Mormonism is from genuine biblical Christianity. I mean, they have some, um, some crazy beliefs that God the Father used to be a human being just like us. Jesus and Satan are brothers the Holy Spirit just really doesn't exist like what the Bible says. And Joseph Smith was the great prophet. And you've got to take his book and put it alongside the Bible, even superior to the Bible. I'm telling you, it is a cult and it is a false church. So are the Jehovah Witnesses. And they have a whole different soteriology than the New Testament. Uh, they knocked on my door one time and I said, you have to do this, don't you? 
You have to do this because you've got to earn your way to heaven uh, because that's part of your salvation. You have to earn, whereas the Scripture says you don't earn. You, you receive it as a grace gift in repentance uh, and faith. So, it's a little bit about the false church, but coming back to the true church, what, 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 what does a true church look like? Well, they observe the sacraments, uh, the Lord's Supper and baptism. Um, now, we don't agree with Roman Catholics that there's some kind of saving mentality associated with the sacraments, uh, but I, I agree with people more like Zwingli and people in our tradition, our faith, that believe that baptism, for example, is, is more symbolic, and so is the, the Lord's Supper. Um, so Grudem, he addresses this interesting question, and I hope this helps some of you because it's a question that you will get asked a lot. I get asked this question a lot. He's talking about Catholicism. Are Catholics a part of the true New Testament church? And I think Grudem does an excellent job here. And I want you to listen to what he says. He says, where they do not preach the word of sal or salvation by grace received by faith, then they are not a true church. He said, but when the priest knows Jesus, preaches the word of God, recognizes uh, the more symbolic nature of the sacraments instead of a means of receiving salvation, he says, yes, they are a part of the true church. And I just agree with that. I believe with all my heart there are born-again Catholics. Now, if I was here in person, some of you would come up to me as soon as this is over, and you'd say, I disagree with you. There are no born-again Catholics, but I would have to disagree because I've actually met some spirit-filled, born-again uh, Catholics. I don't agree with a lot of their uh, theology. But based on what Grudem just said, there, there are some common ground with some of them that I certainly believe. He said, but we would still have problems with the following, and I think this is well said. One, the continuing sacrifice of the Mass which they believe is transubstantiationism. Man, that's a big word. How many syllables is that? Transubstantiationism. Mercy! That's eight syllables in one word. Anyhow, I hadn't planned on talking about that, but anyhow, this is what it means. It means when you get the bread and the wine, when the priest blesses it, that, that becomes the body of Christ. That literally becomes Jesus' flesh. And bones, okay, or, or the flesh and bones, and his blood. That, that is no longer wine, that is no longer juice, that is the blood, the literal blood of Jesus. And there's salvation in that, okay? There's, there's a saving element in partaking of that. Of course, we would disagree with that. Uh, the authority of the Pope and the councils, another area of disagreement. The veneration of the Virgin Mary and her role in redemption, disagree with that. The doctrine of purgatory and the extent of the biblical uh, canon, okay, the Apocrypha, if you will. So, how are we doing on time? It's, uh, I want to go just a little bit longer, Corey. I want to get just a few more things. Uh, okay, sounds good. All right, so let, let me go to C is the purposes uh, of the church. We talked about the marks of the church, what the church uh, characteristics, if you will, of a genuine church. Looked at some uh, heretical churches, if you will. Looked at observing the, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And so next C is the purposes of the church. And when I read that, I couldn't help but smile as I thought about <clears throat> what is our purpose uh, as a church at, at Great Hills. And, and if I were live in person, you were sitting here, and I would stop at this point and ask you, 
what are our three purposes uh, of, a, of our church? What is our motif called? It's called the radiant church, and we worship God upwardly in worship. We teach his word inwardly, passionately in discipleship. And thirdly, shine, we radiate outwardly in evangelism, ministry, and mission. So that's the way we summarize it. And Grudem pretty much does the same thing. Rick Warren and the Purpose Driven Church pretty much does the same thing. All if we're, if we're basing it on the New Testament, then we're going to have these same key features and we're going to have the same purpose, all right? So purpose number one is to worship God. And Grudem puts it like this, the ministry that is to God, and that is the ministry of worship. Acts 2.47 says the early church was praising God and having favor with all the people. Colossians 3.16 says they sang songs of praise to God with thanksgiving. A key foundational purpose of the church is obviously to worship. Now, when I say worship, I'm talking about initially come together as a body of Christ. And we lift up our praise, lift up our hands, we lift up our songs of praise to God, and collectively we worship Him, praise His name, confess our sins, give Him thanks, and we listen to the preached word and we respond. But that's not where it stops. That really is only where it begins. Because then we go and live a lifestyle of worshipers. And we worship Jesus and we honor Jesus in the way we treat our neighbors, in the way that husbands love their wives and wives love their husbands, in the way that we do our dealings with our colleagues and coworkers. And so Romans 12, 1 and 2, we, we are um, committed, not conformed to this world, transformed by the renewing of our mind, and we're presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, worship, which is your spiritual worship. Uh, number two, Grudem calls it ministry to believers, and that is uh, nurture ministry to believers, we would call it discipleship. Uh, in the Great Commission, Jesus said, go therefore make disciples, make disciples. Matthew Sute, command, make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teach them everything that I've commanded you. That's making disciples, not converts, you know, Making a convert would just say, oh, you accepted Christ, that's wonderful. Hope you get grow in the Lord, go read your Bible, go to a, a Bible life class, I hope you make it. That's not a good form of discipleship. Discipleship is when we come alongside new believers, we, we walk with them, we incorporate them into our church, we spend time with them one-on-one, -on -one, nurturing them, helping them to obey everything that Christ commands. That's one of the, the key features of reproducing discipleship that Fred and Melissa Campbell have been teaching us over the last few months. And this component, this holistic approach to evangelism, discipleship is all wrapped up in one so that you take that person, as soon as they commit their lives to Christ, as soon as they yield to the Holy Spirit and they're born again, you start the discipleship process. You start immediately by helping them craft their testimony so they can go and share their testimony. Then you follow up and you meet with them. I love it. I think it's going to be a great thing for our church to do. The last one is called the ministry to the world, and that's evangelism and uh, mercy. Evangelism we get, that's preaching, teaching, sharing, one-on-one, -on -one, the gospel. But when he says mercy, uh, he's using mercy to describe the activity of the church whereby we help uh, the poor uh, and the needy. Um, it, it's kind of a, a social, benevolent, humanitarian, if you will. And I'm going to stop here because once I get started on this, I'm going to get really excited. And so I'm going to need to stop because we're going to look next time at how, how Jesus, for him, it was both and. It was preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing the sick. You know, it was evangelizing, preaching the good news, and it was feeding the 5,000. You see what I'm saying? It's, it's, a, it's a both and. 
Now, um, that's, and that's what Gruden's talking about. He's talking about ministry to the world. It's evangelism and mercy. And I'll just make a note to stop here, but let me uh, say another prayer for you. And by the way, thank you for, um, I guess you weren't asleep. It's hard for me to say whether you were asleep or not. Y'all asleep back there? Amen. Wake up. Okay. Uh, but anyhow, thank you sincerely. Thank you for coming. I hope this has been encouragement to you, and I hope it will motivate you. Remember, people are going to heaven or hell, and it's only good news if they hear the gospel in time. Okay? So let me pray for you. Lord, thank you again for our time uh, together. Thank you, Lord, for allowing me to teach your word. I pray for each person that is here today that you would uh, bless them, God. May they receive this teaching, this, uh, this time with, with, with joy, and may they go and live the principles of the gospel. Uh, Lord, I do um, love you, and I do thank you for the way that you bless us, the way you build us up so that we can be mature in our faith, we can give an answer to people who ask us questions. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.